Uh, so this morning, I want to begin by asking a question that I really hope you won't brush off as unimportant or silly, okay? And I say that because I believe if we're really going to get the most out of what our passage this morning has to offer, then we must begin by asking ourselves this question, and that is this. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to consider this question for a moment, and that is, what is the one thing in life you really, really want but do not have? What's the one thing in life you really want but you don't have? And I want to I free you here. As you're thinking about this in your own mind, please know there's no wrong answer. Okay? You don't have to say it out loud, but what's the one thing you, you really, really want in this life but you don't currently have? Now, I, I could be wrong on this, so, so I, want you to, I want to encourage you to think through what I'm about to say. Test it yourself. But I think, I believe, that each person's answer to that question could fall in one or two categories. Namely, your answer to that question would either be in the category of deliverance or delight. Deliverance from some type of suffering or pain or the delight of some person or thing. For example, when I just asked that question, some of you, perhaps, the first thing that came to your mind, what's the one thing I really want that I don't currently have? The first thing that came to your mind was some kind of deliverance or relief. Relief from maybe some physical pain or a difficult circumstance or the pressures of a job, or caring for an ill family member. The one thing you really, really want in life that you don't currently have is some kind of deliverance, some kind of relief. For others of you, what came to your mind was not deliverance from some hardship, but delight. The thing you really, really want, it could be the Maybe the delight of having children of your own. The delight of having a spouse. The delight of having a job you're satisfied with. Perhaps even the delight of having a certain body type. Perhaps even the delight of wealth. I think our answer to that question, our answers to that question could fall into one or two categories, broad categories. Either some kind of deliverance, or some kind of delight? Which category did your answer fall into? Here's a follow-up question. What would you do, what would you be willing to do to get that which you really, really want? To put it another way, 
what lengths would you go to to get the deliverance you're craving for, you're yearning for from your suffering? How far would you go to enjoy the delight of a romantic relationship, a spouse, the blessing of children, or perhaps even the abundance of wealth? What would you be willing to do? How far would you go? One more question. What would you do if that which you really, really wanted was right in front of you and all you had to do was reach out and take it? Would you do it? Would you take it? I ask that Because, friend, that's the exact situation David finds himself in our passage this morning. In 1 Samuel 24, David has the very unique opportunity to not only experience deliverance from the pain he's suffering at the hand of Saul, but he also has the opportunity to seize the delight of now being Israel's king. It's literally right there in front of him for the taking. He can get both at the same time deliverance, the deliverance he wants, and the delight he wants. Let me ask you, what would you do in that situation? You know what David did? He didn't take it. And you know what I want to know? Why? <laughs> Why didn't David do what so many of us would have done in that exact situation? Deliverance, relief from the suffering he's experiencing at the hand of Saul. The delight then in being the king of Israel. Why didn't David take what was right in front of him and what he really, really wanted. What was David thinking? Well, our passage answers that very question. And it's actually a very important answer because as we're about to see, it provides exceptional biblical counsel regarding what we are to do with our deepest longings and desires and how we're to think about them. All right? So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel 24. To give you the context, as we've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, David's on the run. He's on the run from Saul. In the previous chapter, chapter 23, David saves a town. He goes into hiding. Saul finds them. Saul's hot on his tails. He's gonna, looks like he's going to finally kill David, but the, the Lord in his providence has the Philistines attack. So Saul has to retreat from his pursuit of David. And we're going to pick things up here in verse 1 of chapter 24. 
It's a wildly entertaining and even humorous text that has a very important truth. So we read this. Chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. Excuse me. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Do you have a cough drop? Thank you, Daniel. Ah. <coughs> so sorry. So do you see the picture here? Uh, Saul went in to relieve himself. That's exactly what it means. <laughs> okay? <coughs> Excuse me. The Hebrew literally says, he went in <coughs> to put his robe at his feet. Let the reader understand. But Saul's not alone in the cave. Verse 4, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And when the men of David, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They're saying, David, we didn't go to seminary, but we can see this is God's providence. Look at what's before you here. Don't look too closely, but look at what's before you here, right? <coughs> now, David's men are interpreting the situation, but they are not accurately reflecting what God said. God did not say to David anywhere, one day I'm going to put Saul in your hands and you can do to him whatever you want. God never promised David that. But that's what the men are saying he did. So what does David do? What would you do in that situation? And just for a moment consider how miserable Saul has made David's life. What would you do if a man tried to kill you multiple times? What would you do if a man, in effect, took from you your wife, family, and home? What would you do if a man slandered your name? And now you have an opportunity. And all those around you are saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. Be glad and rejoice in it, David. Look at what's before you. So notice what David does there in verse 5. 
Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now that word that is translated persuade his men, in the Hebrew there's actually kind of a play on words. David tore off, cut off part of Saul's robe. The language that is used in Hebrew carries a similar tone. It's as if David tore into his men. It's a strong, forcible exhortation where he's saying, do not touch him. Do not kill Saul. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now I just want you to consider for a moment how risky it was for David to come out of the cave to say that. would have been much safer and somebody very smarter for him just to stay in the cave and just let things go on. But what we see here in David is a man who is entrusting the situation over the Lord and who wants to seek some kind of reconciliation with the man who's trying to kill him. And he's setting aside the sphere to seek reconciliation with Saul. Now notice how Saul responds, verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice 
my son David. Now that should tip us off. How has Saul always referred to David? The son of who? Jesse. Jesse. Now how does he describe him? My son. If we're reading our Bibles carefully, we know something's going on in Saul's heart. Some kind of tenderness is taking place. Because then even notice the next line. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, where I has repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. What a significant statement from Saul. Saul's beginning to see things correctly. Verse 21, Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen and amen. Last year, the San Francisco Gate newspaper ran the story. They ran it in March of last year. Here's the headline. California mom crushed to learn plant she watered for two years is fake. True story. The article begins with these words. This isn't an onion article. This is a true story. The article begins with these words. A California stay-at-home mom was devastated to learn that a succulent she had taken care of for two years is made out of plastic. Here's a picture. Callie Wilkes said in a Facebook post that she received the plant as a gift and worked hard to nurture and protect it, making sure it received enough water and plenty of sunshine. She even washed the spongy leaves She says this quote, if someone else tried to water my succulent, I would get so defensive. Well, after two years, two years of carefully nurturing her plant, she decided it was time to transplant it into a vase. So she picked out the cutest vase she could to transplant her succulent. And it was at that moment that she discovered it was plastic. Here are the pictures. See there? Poor woman, right? She couldn't tell the difference between a real plant and a fake one. She was confused. Faith, in the passage I just read, David is given the perfect opportunity to not only be free from Saul's threats, but also become king. In fact, as we looked at, All of David's men tell him that this is the opportunity 
to kill Saul, this opportunity to kill Saul is actually God's provision. So they say, so David, what are you waiting for? Kill Saul and get what you really want. Deliverance from Saul and the delight of being Israel's king. Yet did Saul, did David kill Saul? And you know why? Here's why. Because unlike that lady who confused a fake plant for a real plant, David did not confuse temptation as being God's provision. No, he was able to discern the difference between the two. This is why David did not take matters into his own hands and kill Saul. You see, Faith, I believe in many ways this passage is functioning as a warning. A warning to us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's that warning? It's simply this. And that is, do not mistake temptation for God's provision. In other words, learn how to distinguish between the two. Faith, it's one thing to make and to mistake a fake plant for a real one. But it's quite another to mistake a temptation for God's provision. Now think back to a moment ago of the question I asked at the beginning of our time together. Christian, what is it you really, really want in this life but you do not have? A spouse? Children? A certain job? Relief from a hard marriage? Deliverance from some kind of circumstance? What is it you really want? I ask you that, Christian, because if you are not careful, your longings, your desires can deceive you into thinking that a temptation is really God's provision for you. What I mean is, something comes along that appears to fulfill your deep desires, even though to get it, you must engage in some kind of sin. And Christian, please hear me. If your desires are not in check, they can deceive you into thinking that this is God's provision and you will then take matters into your hands and do things that God clearly forbids. I mean, is this not why so, I mean, why is it that so many Christian women choose to date unbelieving men? Is it not because they have a deep longing to have a spouse so when the next warm body comes along, they believe it to be God's provision for their unmet desire? Never mind he isn't a Christian. Never mind he's a jerk. That woman really wants a companion, so she takes matters into her own hands and begins dating an unbeliever, all the while deceiving herself into thinking, this is God's provision for me. 
Think of all the other temptations we willfully deceive ourselves into thinking are God's provision. You're offered that dream job. Oh man, the benefits, the paid vacation, the salary, the corner office, the title. All you have to do is you just have to tell a little bit of a white lie about last quarter's sales numbers and it's yours. This is God's provision for my life. Or you really want relief from a hard marriage. That's what you really want. Your spouse is difficult. Along comes a new coworker who, unlike your husband, he is kind, he is thoughtful, and he's attentive. And suddenly thoughts of divorce start entering your mind. And although you have no biblical grounds for divorce, you convince yourself, you know what, I, I married the wrong person. And this guy, this guy's the one for me. So you take matters into your hands and you file for divorce. Because look, God wants me to be happy. Doesn't he? Or consider David again. Man, everything he wanted was right there in front of him. He even had the spear in hand, the sword in hand. All he had to do was take matters into his own hands and kill Saul. Yet David resisted. He did not seize what was only God's to give. So friend, don't mistake temptation as God's provision. So, how can we do that? Well, I believe our, our passage shows us, but before we do, I just want to be clear on one thing. Maybe it's a question you have. Throughout this text, especially in verse 10, David says that the Lord gave Saul into his hand. Do you remember that? So does this mean that God was tempting David to do a wicked deed? Was God tempting David? And the answer is what? And why can we say that so confidently? Well, what does James tell us in James 1, 13 and 14? James reminds us that God tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own what? Desires. Did God orchestrate the events to have Saul in that cave? Yes. So in one sense, the Lord did give Saul into David's hand. Yet did God tempt David to kill Saul into sin? No. For as James tells us, such temptations come not from God, but from our desires within. Indeed, if anything, it was David's men who were tempting him to kill Saul. So how can we, like David, not mistake temptation for God's provision? Well, our passage, I think, shows us. I think the text highlights three actions we must make if we're going to properly discern the difference between temptation and God's provision. The first is this, and that is, how do we do this? We First, we need to make God's word our compass. Look again at verses 3 through 6 and then verse 10. We'll pick things up in verse 
4, so, so Saul went in to relieve himself. Verse 4, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of, of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So here's one word that David could use to be his compass in life, to direct him. But notice, what does David do? That David rose and stealthily caught off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, to the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And then go down to verse 10 when he's talking to Saul. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. First thing we need to do is work to have God's word be the compass to direct our lives. Now, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther is credited for writing this insightful poem. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. Luther wrote this. He said, Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel concerned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand for what? Forever. His word shall stand. There's something else that I'm going to trust more than my feelings, Martin Luther says, and that's God's word. And I want you to notice, Faith, that this is not only testimony of the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, but also David. Throughout this passage, the main reason why David chooses not to kill Saul is because Saul is the Lord's what? Anointed. You'll recall the Lord had previously anointed Saul as king in verse 1 of chapter 10. And even though the Spirit of the Lord already left Saul, Faith, this is what we have to understand. God's word made it abundantly clear that the anointed of the Lord should not be killed or even cursed. This is the testimony of Scripture. And David knew this. David knew that God's word commanded that no one should harm or bring affliction upon God's anointed. You see, David made God's word the compass for his life. Please hear me. Not his feelings and not his desires. And because God's word was David's compass, he knew that he could not achieve the purpose of God by breaking the command of God. And this is how David was able to discern that this was a temptation, not God's provision. Dale Ralph Davis states it very well. Speaking of the dilemma facing David in the cave, right? When Saul is there for the taking, his men are around him saying, kill him. He's got the spear in hand. Dale Ralph Davis writes this. He says this. 
He says, was this providence or temptation? And how does one discern the difference? It was a searching test for the Lord's servant. Only the principle of the sanctity of the Lord's anointed answers the dilemma. Only the truth of God's word could shed light on the situation to know the difference. Now, before we begin to apply this into our own lives today, this passage, let's be first to see, as we've talked about before, how does this relate to Jesus, right? Because remember, the way that we ought to study God's word, especially the Old Testament, is we go from the text to Jesus to us, right? As we mentioned before, David is a type of Christ. His life, David's life, is a pattern that will be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, I'm going to even argue you can't really even know Jesus without knowing David. I mean, just consider for a moment, did not Jesus, David's son, face a very similar test as David here? What, what do we read about Jesus in Luke chapter 4? In Luke chapter 4, where is Jesus located? He's in the what? The wilderness, the desert. And who is tempting him? And what is what is Satan tempting Jesus to seize and take hold of? He shows him all the kingdoms of the what? And Satan says, look, here's this kingdom. Look at all the kingdoms. Just as the men are saying, you can have the kingdom now. Satan's saying, look, here are all these kingdoms. They can all be yours. You can take hold of it, Jesus. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Just like David, Jesus was tempted to take matters into his own hands. He was attempted to achieve God's purposes apart from God's ways. And as followers of Christ, do we not face the same temptations? Indeed, can we not deceive ourselves into thinking such temptations are actually God's provisions? So notice, just as God's word was David's compass, it was also Christ's compass when he was in the wilderness, wasn't that? For tell me, how did Jesus respond to each one of Satan's temptations? How did he, what did he respond with? The word of God, saying, is it not written? Is it written? Yet please hear me. We have to understand that Jesus did not simply combat Satan's temptations by reciting Bible verses. Are you, are you hearing me here? No, Jesus was doing something far greater in that moment. You know what he was doing? Jesus combated the temptations of Satan by allowing the truth of God's word to be the compass that guided his choices and actions. Please, Faith, please hear me. Let us not be so naive as to think that the only way to fight off temptation is just by reciting the Bible verse and not actually applying it. No, we must not only know Scripture, but we then, we must live in light of its truth to fight temptation. Second, I want to show that the way we discern between provision of God or temptation 
is by keeping a clear conscience. Notice again verses 5 and 7. So, so David, he, he cut off the robe, and verse 5 says, And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. So how do we not mistake temptation for God's provision? First, make God's word your compass. You have to not only pursue to know it, but live in light of its truth, but then second, keep a clear conscience. As some of you know, prior to me driving and owning the gray van, I used to own a 1999 Honda Accord. It was hot. With over 200,000 miles, some rust on the wheels, and a busted passenger mirror, I got to tell you, it turned heads, okay? <laughs> well, well, shortly after we bought the car, some 16 years ago, the check engine light came on. So we actually, we were just in Louisville for a short time. We were new to the area, didn't know of any good mechanics, so I just decided to bring the car to this one shop in particular. And I'll never forget that experience. Now, I do have to confess, I, I, don't, I forget all they did to my car. All I remember were two things. First, whatever they did, it was not cheap. <laughs> Second, whatever they did, it didn't fix the problem because the check engine light kept coming back on. So I brought the car back to the shop and told the guy, hey, you know, um, just want to let you know, I, I don't, in the most gracious way I said this, I don't think the mechanics fixed what I paid for because the check engine line keeps turning on in the car. It even sounds a little funny. And I'll never forget what he said. As serious as a heart attack, he looked at me and he said, you know what, if I were you, I'll just put a piece of black tape over the check engine light on your dash. He said, we did everything correctly. Your car's fine. In other words, his advice to me were this. Just ignore the warning sign. That was his advice. Well, Faith, in many ways, your conscience is like the check engine light on the dashboard of your car. Your conscience lets you know that something is wrong. Namely, your conscience identifies the presence of guilt due to your sin. The Bible teaches that God has given everyone the faculty of conscience Romans 2, 14 through 15 tells us that God has written his law on our hearts, which means we all have some sense of right and wrong. And when you sin, your conscience, the check engine light, goes on making you aware of your sin and guilt. And here's what you have to understand. There's only one way to remove that presence of guilt. It's not through time. No, it's through confession and repentance. Faith, confession and repentance are God's appointed means by which a person can have a clear conscience. In other words, they are God's repair shop where your check engine light can be properly fixed. And I want you to notice 
That is precisely what we see David doing in these verses. Question, did, did David take the advice of his men and kill Saul? Okay. But what did David do? He cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, some of you might say, so what? Big deal. Why should David's conscience be bothered by that? He didn't kill the guy. He just cut off a little piece. Well, Old Testament scholar Peter Lightheart helps us out here. He writes this. Because the robe was a sign of office, an attack on the robe was an attack on the king himself. After cutting the robe, David realized that even this kind of symbolic attack was a sin. Think of, of what we've learned previously about robes in the book of 1 Samuel. What does Jonathan do when he sees David right after David defeats Goliath? He goes up to David and what does he give David? His robe signifying the kingdom's going to be yours, right? So notice what, what David does. After he cuts off the robe, he immediately confesses his sin and he turns from it. And Christian, we ought to do the same for this is the only way we can keep a clear conscience. So let me just drill down here for just a moment. This is so important. Faith, failure to keep a good conscience is disastrous. In fact, as John Calvin went so far as to say this quote, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. In other words, all sorts of distortions are born out of a bad conscience. So here's an appropriate question we need to ask ourselves, and that is, Christian, what do you do when the check engine light goes on in your heart? What do you do with your sin? Do you, do you excuse it? Do you justify it? Do you simply put a piece of black tape over it to ignore it? You know what happens to people who ignore their sin and sear their conscience? You know what happens? They deceive themselves into thinking that a temptation is really God's provision. They take matters into their own hands in order to satisfy their desires. And finally, I think this text encourages us to entrust ourselves to the Lord. This is how we, the third step. Look again at David's speech here. I'm going to pick things up in verse 12. And notice how frequently David is entrusting himself and the situation over to the Lord David says, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Here again, I want to argue, we see 
a pattern of David that is fulfilled in the life of Christ. I mean, one, I don't think one can read this without thinking about what Peter wrote of our Savior in 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember what Peter says about Jesus when he was suffering, when he was being reviled? Just like David, I have it here up on the screen. What did Peter writes this about Jesus? He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did Jesus do in this hard, difficult circumstance, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly? That's exactly what David's doing. And the text goes out of its way. David says, you know, the Lord judge. The, the Lord be the one to discern. The Lord do what he sees fit. David is entrusting himself over to the Lord. David did not revile in return. He didn't threaten Saul. But he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And faith, there's an application here for those of you who want nothing more than deliverance from a difficult circumstance or person. For those of you that would have answered, what is it that you really, really want right now, but you don't have, and you would have fallen into the deliverance category, there's a word here for you. You know what the application is for you in whatever hard or difficult situation you might be in right now? Perhaps you who are feeling and experiencing trials because of your faith. The application is the verse before this. When Peter writes, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps, the footsteps of David, the footsteps of Christ, and entrust to God who judges justly that he's going to right all the wrongs you are suffering and experiencing. Indeed, for those of you who are suffering for the sake of Christ or who will one day be persecuted for your faith, God's word tells us why we are to entrust ourselves to God. And it's because God will bring vengeance on those who harm his people. I mean, this is how we make sense of the imprecatory Psalms and other large swaths of Scripture, but consider what Paul writes about this in First Thess or Second Thessalonians. He says this, this evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to replay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And notice, what is God going to do to those who harm God's people and those who are unbelievers? Notice what Paul writes, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, you can entrust whatever hard situation, you can entrust yourself to God who judges rightly because one day He is going to judge rightly. He is going to repay evildoers. This is in the Bible. And this is meant to comfort Christians 
who are suffering at the hands of evildoers. Much like David. Faith only a God who rights the wrongs inflicted on his people can be their well-proved help in troubles. Friend, can I ask, especially in light of this verse on the screen, not ask, but rather if I can just tell you, if you're here this morning and you have not owned your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is your future that awaits you. Judgment. Yet the good news of Scripture is, a, is that although you may have taken matters into your own hands at times, although you have elevated your desires above God, and although you are rightfully deserving God's wrath for your sin, friend, please hear me, you can be forgiven and made clean through faith in Jesus Christ. What a Savior we have. Have you done that? Friend, Christian, let us not cut corners, be it of a man's robe or in obedience to God's commands. Instead, as a church, let us continue to trust our Savior and entrust our desires over to Him. May we be able, especially the song of response, may this be a prayer where we confess as God's people that it is so sweet to trust Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.